The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke, and in this week's episode, we're at the heart of Europe. Later on, we'll be talking about Art Basel, the Swiss art fair. It's produced worldwide siblings, but the original Swiss fair remains the art world's favourite. I'll be asking Melanie Gerlis, who writes for the Financial Times and the Art Newspaper, why. But first this week, to Berlin. Regular listeners will remember that we reported from the Berlin Gallery Weekend not that long ago, but last week saw the opening of the 10th edition of the Berlin Biennale. This edition's title is We Don't Need Another Hero, and it's directed by Gabriele Horn. Our Berlin-based reporter, Arslan Mohammed, has been finding out more. So over to him. Hello and welcome to Berlin and the 10th Berlin Biennale, which opened on June the 10th across three venues around the city. Since its inception in 1998, under the uber-curator Klaus Biesenbach, with Hans Ulrich Oberst, the Berlin Biennale has evolved, Doctor Who style, through a number of iterations that have gradually broadened in thematic scope beyond the linear chronology of Berlin as a city, and instead moving to a wider abstraction of ideas, theories, ideologies and perspectives. And this year, following the rather mixed critical response to the sprawling, cheeky 2016 event curated by the New York collective DIS, the Berlin Biennale is curated by Johannesburg-based curator and critic Gabi Nkobo, uh, she was in the artistic collective in South Africa known as the Centre for Historical Reenactments. Now, this year, it's a much smaller Biennale. It's spread over three venues, obviously the main Kunstwerke venue in Mitte. There's also the Académie der Kunst in Moabit and the ZKU. Across these venues, you will find a predominantly non-European roster of artists presenting painting, installation, sculpture and so on. And it's an incredibly enigmatic Biennale. There are very few answers here and in fact in her opening statements at the press launch and in the accompanying texts to the Biennale there are repeated injunctions against us trying to seek too much immediate information here. Uh, It has rubbed up some of the critics and audiences here rather the wrong way uh, especially those who are frustrated by the lack of easy entry points into this Biennale and by Nkobo's a rather willful stubbornness in providing us with soothing platitudes and with the kind of statements which will really make sense as we walk around this rather dizzying kaleidoscope of work. There are no easy answers. There are no quick solutions here. Uh, at the open events, Nkobo said, we are at war. And uh, with what is a moot point? Alongside Gabi Nkobo, there was a curatorial team, mainly from uh, South Africa, and that was composed of Noma Duma Rosa Masilela, uh, Sarubi Moses, Tiago de Paula Souza, and Yvette Matumba. And I spoke to Serebiri Moses at the opening night of the event where we stood on the street outside Kunstwerke and fairly goggled at the thousands of people trying to get in before we repaired somewhere slightly less noisy, a cafe nearby, for a conversation about his role in the shaping of the 10th Berlin Biennale. And here he is. Yeah, I was invited uh, by the chief curator, uh, Gavin Oho, who I've known for a long time, actually, quite a long time. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe five years, it's not too long, but um, yeah. And what, what did she come to you with? Did she have a germ of an idea how she wants to approach the project? Was it a very collaborative conversation between you and the other curators about 
How, how did the, the concept begin? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was... A, I mean, Gavin Lobo had, uh, of course, done an interview with the you know, selection committee. So, of course, there was you know, a proposal for a 10th Berlin Biennale before I came on board. But um, in Sao Paulo, we met with uh, Thiago de Paula Souza, who lives there. And I was there also. Uh, this was the towards the end of the Sao Paulo Biennial in 2016, and we just had an informal meeting, and and that was it. You know, I, you know, she said, I've been announced, and um, you know, would like you to be part of this project. What do you feel you brought initially to the the project? I mean, did you have certain positions, certain uh, questions you wanted to address, certain themes? And how, how did that conversation go? Well, I think um, I could give a more precise answer, but I'll start with maybe uh, the fact that the collaborative process is one, uh, perhaps, in which we we come together um, in a kind of in a way that is uncomfortable, but so that we can challenge, you know, a kind of a complacency, you know, with so-called like ideological positions or demagogic positions so while we're dismantling power structures the idea is to actually try and confirm or reform objects you know re-articulate or even um, gesture towards you know different ways of looking at the same uh, um, ideas and concepts. So in essence what you would say is yeah. that a large part of the, the fundamental concept here is this idea of disruption, of breaking down established hierarchies and inviting us to adopt other perspectives. Could you maybe go into a bit more detail here and give me some more concrete examples of, yeah. of how you've, you've done this? Um, well we break down we, we I think we have to accept that um, one of our you know most preeminent forms of, of hero worship is nationalism and I, I listened to a talk by Arundhati Roy recently where she was asked what her thoughts were on nationalism and she said you know it's it's something that is almost in, uh, untamable at this point. It's, it's growing bigger and bigger and it's monstrous. But that doesn't mean we should give up, you know, what our positions are. It doesn't mean that we should give up our uh, desire to, to for, a, you know, for a different world. It doesn't mean we... So I would say it was about imagining you know, that the, the stories that we've grown up with the the narratives that we you know have shared wherever we come from um, are a central part of this exhibition I think knowing that previous editions of this biennial and indeed the contemporary art world that is not the case so it we try to imagine something that probably will not be will never come true but that's a dream of ours. So I would say... A sort of utopian sense. You're presenting ideas which you know... You're presenting positions which you know are fairly impractical in a sense. That, but 
by illustrating you feel you're opening up uh, an, an, a possible narrative? No, I think we're we're pres- we're not we neither presenting we're not presenting a utopian idea, but we're we're rather embodying discomfort, you know, um, discomfort with the structure, the power structures uh, of the art world, and I mean, by that I mean, you know, the very sort of uh, defining um, group of artists in the art world. I mean, a lot of people, when they looked at the um, artist list, they were, you know, Surprised, and they identified a number of artists who they did not know. It's this kind of um, thing where, you know, of course, we're imagining that for us this is the case. We know these artists, we're comfortable with them, and we would like to see a biennial in which that that is the case. That they are, you know, these are the positions that we would like to share with the public. What did Berlin itself, as a city in 2018, directly inspire in the gestation of the project? Well, that, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, but I think, personally, uh, and, and, and you know, if I may speak for, for the team as well, uh, Berlin is a kind of um, space in which we can actually congregate. You know, I think it's, it's a kind of... Um, it's neither New York nor is it you know, uh, say, Lagos, you know. I mean, we kind of, uh, it's a kind of middle ground, you know, for, for certain kinds of conversations like place. At the same time, I mean, so it has an open spirit for, uh, that will allow a kind of exhibition such as the one we have proposed that is not conforming to the foremost, you know, uh, set of, <laughs> I think, criteria or set of artists that have been shown in you know the ma- most major shows um, or exhibitions but um, also there's another layer that is complicated and that's the one that what happens when you do that you know the discomfort that comes with uh, uh, yeah with within within such a situation I mean and here I'm talking about the, uh, the people who live here I mean obviously um, people who um, hope to sort of be part of you know this dialogue and this conversation you know in a way so we can't actually ignore um, the positions that are not our own in a sense and we have to be aware that we're actually speaking towards those those positions so Now, in order to get some perspective on the event, I met up with a local curator, critic and organiser of the rather intriguing Noon Art Talks event. Uh, Annika von Talbot used to be the editor of Berlin's uh, Sleek magazine, which is arts, lifestyle, culture and so on. And she really is a veteran of the art scene in the city. And so when we met uh, the day after the opening of the Biennale, uh, she had spent much of the day, rather like we all had, trawling around the various sites and getting to grips with the scope and the scale of ambition here. I asked her what she made of this year's event and how it stacked up to previous Biennales in Berlin, and also how she thought the Biennale related to its host city. Um, in your most recent edition, you did actually discuss the role of a Biennale in Berlin, or, or, or the role of the Berlin Biennale. 
Well, yes, actually, yes, we did take the uh, opportunity to look at the 20 years of Berlin Biennale because we're now looking at the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Biennale with the 10th edition. That's this year. And so we invited uh, Gabi Horn, the director of the Berlin Biennale, to talk about the history of the Berlin Biennale and to, to look at how the format has shaped the city's art scene or if it has shaped the city's art scene, actually, if it has had any influence on um, the local evolution of um, the art scene. And so was it just Gabby Horn who was talking? And we also had Juliette Quarter, the director of the Boris Collection, who is also a culture historian, so she was able to talk about the evolution of the format of the Biennale, the Biennial in general. And so what were the... What, what was the takeaway from this conversation? I mean, there must have been a, a lot of interesting points raised during this talk. At the, at the end of this conversation, what was the, the conclusion of the, of the speakers and, and of the audience who participated? Well, actually, the interesting, the starting point actually is the most interesting element of it because the, you have to know that the first Berlin Biennale actually helped very much. It was crucial in putting Berlin on the international art scenes map. Uh, if it hadn't been for the Berlin Biennale, it would have taken much longer for the international art scene to, you know, to think right. of Berlin as the yeah. cool, evolving hotspot of art. So it was that influential? It was that influential. You know, it had Klaus Biesenbach and Hans-Ulrich yeah. Obrist and Nancy Spector, three really influential curators. And um, so we were looking at, um, because in the beginning, the Berlin Biennale was very much about, almost like an a marketing tool to promote Berlin and so we felt uh, the Berlin Biennale throughout the years has always needed to be very strongly, very closely connected to Berlin, you know, to resonate with the, the local um, situation, the local um, happenings in order to work um, strangely enough though this wasn't the case. If you look at the history of the Berlin Biennale, it's, a lot of Biennales have been very much about Berlin, but these were not the most successful ones. How do you mean most of the Biennales have been about Berlin? Do you mean when, when, when they take as a fundamental concept some aspect of, that is unique to the city? Yes, for example, the third Biennale, the third Berlin Biennale curated by Ute Mitterbauer was very much about the history of Berlin, about the East-West conflict, the Cold War, the wall, the fall of the wall. But it was considered to be very didactic and very historic. So it didn't really resonate with the people. Whereas other biennials, take the last one, for example, you know, which was very much about post-internet art and the influx of the digital. Uh, a lot of Berliners felt like this wasn't their Biennale. But it received tons of press. Yes, yes. But it created lots of, you know, it got lots of press and it created buzz and it definitely worked. When you say it definitely worked, you mean it it kind of flagged up Berlin again on the international stage. And that comes back to our, our question is, what is the role of the BNR? So one of the original uh, ideas behind it, by when Wiesenbach launched it, was to present Berlin to an international audience. Yes. Do you still feel this is a main motivation of the Biennale? It definitely is not, although I feel it should be, but it is, if you look at the concept of the 10th Berlin Biennale, uh, it is so not about Berlin. And when I first heard about this concept, I have to admit I was a bit sceptical because it seemed so much to be about negating about everything there was, starting with the title, you know, we don't need another hero. And then you started hearing about the Biennale and everything you read was about, this is what it's not going to be about. It's not going to be about recontextualization. It's not going to be about decolonization. But this is what we all assumed it would be about. So I But then by, was, no, by saying it's not about this, then 
it is about it, isn't it? it, it, it. Exactly, exactly. But I felt, you know, if, if, if Biennale is called the Berlin Biennale, it definitely should talk about what it is going to be about, and it should be specifically connected to the place it's happening at. So we felt we were kind of expecting something like, you know, tumbleweed rolling through the city, not having anything to do with it. So I was only more surprised to find it to be very much about Berlin, even if in a much more abstract way, yes. How, how, how would you say? Almost every piece I saw was about um, roots, finding roots, defining roots, losing them. Um, take that work by Sarah Hawk, for example. Um, you know, the reed, did you see the reed at Akademie der Künste that she placed in the floor? cracks in the floor and she just put up these these straws um that was a very poetic gesture and it was very much about you know placing roots and at the same time showing you the fragility of roots uh, over the past 20 years you know the evolution of the art scene has only been possible because of the influx of people from all over the world you know this is not Berlin's doing this is the world's doing and all these people have different routes and they've come to Berlin and they have set up new routes and many have failed actually Berlin is a very very difficult place to make it your home but those who have succeeded have really created a force have some power and I feel I, this is what I see in this Biennale which is why I react very strongly, very emotionally to it. And that surprises me, actually. The Berlin Biennale is on until the 9th of September. Now, this week, the world's top collectors, curators and museum directors and many notable artists have flocked to Basel in Switzerland for the annual Art Basel Fair. Melanie Gerlis, the art market specialist who writes for the Financial Times and is editor-at-large for the art newspaper, joins me on the line to tell me about this most loved of art fairs and how this year's event is shaping up. Melanie, Art Basel is renowned as the sort of favourite fair of collectors and generally in the art world. Why is that, do you think? Hi, Ben. Yes, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, it's it's 49th year, uh, so it's obviously doing something right. Um, I think the first thing to say really is where it is. Um, I think Switzerland and, and Basel in particular has a very, very long history of collecting. Um, and it's also not massively distracted by things other than art. I mean, it's got the most phenomenal museums it's, who, who really push the boat out for for this week Um, and people are just very very happy to be surrounded by as much art as possible for five days uh, in what has become probably the the, the most prestigious fair on on this very busy circuit. And is it right that that the galleries do reserve their absolute best works for this fair? Most do actually, yes, and there were some. I, I mean, I saw a couple of pieces that were made specifically for the fair, and I, I'm sure there are more, you know, more than a couple. But I, I definitely picked up on that. I mean, I think some works are known about a little bit ahead of time, and so people, in a way, use the fair as a marketing device to focus attention. But certainly, if you were going to pick one selling event, you know, outside of your own gallery program, um, then Art Basel is is the one that uh, artists, some artists, uh, and most galleries would choose. 
So, so tell me, what sort of work do you see at the fair? Because there is, is there a sort of fine balance between the modern and the contemporary, or is it predominantly contemporary? Well, it depends what floor you're on, actually. I mean, on the the ground floor, there there were 290. There are, sorry, 290 galleries in the in the main fair. On the ground floor, it is predominantly modern, um, but. Uh, and there are certain artists who are repeated. I mean, this year there's an awful lot of Joan Mitchell. So you feel like you're in a modern world. Um, but the modern art market is a, is a shrinking market, is a naturally shrinking market because the, the artists aren't alive anymore. Um, so you do also have an awful lot of contemporary. And on the first floor in particular, you have the galleries who, you know, who range from what I would call classic contemporary artists, so contemporary artists you've heard of, um, to some really quite new, edgy pieces in the statements section, um, which I thought was particularly strong, actually, this year. That's interesting. So so um, what made it strong in particular? It was just that there was a lot of interesting work or is it, has it been expanded? Or No, I think nearly every work had something interesting to tell and was presented really quite tightly um it, it didn't seem like a, a, a student uh, show which sometimes these these emerging artist sections can be a bit more like i mean there was a helen verhoven piece which was brought by um Stiger van dosberg gallery which is a recreated little church uh, a very secular church with some very secular stained glass windows but you walk in and it's it doesn't it feels very interesting. Yeah, much almost like more like a sort of a work, uh, a sort of museum quality work, as opposed to a kind of um, emerging gallery, edgy sort of fringy work. If you think exactly, and there seemed to be some research done by all the artists and, and thinking, um, but not too conceptual. One of the things I'm interested in is this idea that we've been seeing in terms of the auction world, where there is, you know, there's a there's clearly a very strong interest in in the modern and there are these sort of absolutely stellar prices that are raised for modern works but but the contemporary is is just on the rise permanently there's a sense in which the momentum is with contemporary and yet we as you mentioned joe mitchell earlier on and 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 there's this extraordinary burst of activity in among collectors in terms of joe mitchell's works at the fair so that that seems slightly out of step with what we're hearing elsewhere would that be fair or is that just a sort of misreading no i mean i think what you've got at the moment is this problem of a winner takes all so the bigger galleries are doing well while some of the others are struggling and these bigger galleries now sell quite a lot of modern art you've got quite a lot of new artist estates or even collection houses and worth has, has just picked up the panzer collection you know so, so what really used to be the preserve of auction houses these mega galleries are doing um i would definitely say that the energy is still around contemporary in terms of excitement but certainly at the beginning of the fair um at the vip opening everyone made a dash to these big name modern art displays by the mega galleries and to the extent that you know you couldn't get into booths let alone see the art uh, whereas some of these exciting galleries on the first floor were, were, were waiting a while so I think you're seeing a bit of that playing out on the on the art fair floor. So in other words there are, there's a sort of sense of playing safe to a degree 
uh, among collectors. So they're spending a lot of money, but they really are aiming for blue chip names. And Joan Mitchell has really entered into that sort of stellar group of artists whose work is selling for multi-million, uh, multi-million pounds, dollars, etc. Absolutely. And I think there is a safety, you know, to a certain extent, clients of these galleries probably know what they're going to bring and expect them to bring their, you know, I want to see Joan Mitchell, I want to see a Basquiat, I want to see, you know, a Gunter Ferg. It doesn't mean they're not also in, you know, if there's time and an inclination, it doesn't mean they don't also want to go and look at other stuff for, for interest, but definitely it's a safer market than it used to be. Let's talk about Joan Mitchell then, because she, I mean, apart from the fact that she's she's a wonderful painter and she, for a very long period, was not, never received the attention that her work deserved. It's a, a beautiful lyrical abstraction with a lot of vigour and energy and colour. Um, but she has suddenly hit this, this you know, there's, there's a, been a lot of reports this week about her reaching a, a sort of different level of price point. She's all, she's been selling for millions of pounds, for millions of dollars for quite a long time. But, but, but suddenly she's taken another step tell me more about the kind of prices she's been fetching this week yes I think you're right she has been selling for, for millions but possibly not the, the same high number of millions as some of her male abstract expressionist counterparts um, and then what happened I mean two things have happened to put her in the in the more in the ether if you like she sold her work, her blueberry work, sold for um, $16.5 million, um, including fees at Christie's just now, which is a new record. I think it's some $5 million more than she'd been selling before, and that was only a few weeks ago. Um, And David's Werner Gallery has just taken on the estate. Now, I don't think David's Werner has had time to completely change the market, but it's put her name out there. Um, and I think, you know, you often see it at Basel and at other fairs, but Basel is often a few weeks after some mega auctions in New York. If people happen to have a Joan Mitchell, um, they probably think now is a very good time to sell, or the galleries are encouraging them to think now is a time to sell. So they bring them out. I mean, there are a good... 10 Joan Mitchells that I spotted on the ground floor, um, right. possibly more. That's interesting, isn't it? And and what about what about the kind of contemporary stuff on the frame? I mean, there was some sort of again talking about Zwerner, He sold uh, a Carol Bovet uh, sculpture, which is in the unlimited section for one point five million dollars, I guess. Um, and that, again, that's a that's a, that's a big price. And she's an artist who really seems to have been grabbed the. I mean, her, to be fair, I think her her new sculptures are utterly seductive and beautiful things. These these metal things and some of the some sort of twisted metal and some of the metal has been painted these extraordinarily vivid colours. And then next to the kind of raw metal and they are really extraordinary things but again she she seems to have sort of leapt and she is a very much a sort of an artist who's who's both a museum artist and a market artist at the moment yes i completely agree in a way there is a there is a link in between carol bova and joan mitchell i think they're both working in what we think of as quite masculine muscular styles and in carol bova's case you know materials um but doing it in their in their own way so actually i think 
you've hit a connection that is very valid. Um, But also, yes, I mean, I think she first came into my sphere um, when Zwerner brought one of her works to Freeze, um, the last Freeze edition. Um, And then, of course, now he has a huge solo show of her work in London. And we're quite lucky to have these American galleries in, in London bringing us, you know, artists we maybe didn't know so well. And then this piece in Unlimited is her biggest work, Yet, and it is exactly as you say, utterly seductive, considering it's uh, it's steel. So um, the unlimited section is a really curious section, isn't it? Because actually, it's it's in a way this is the this is the um, part of Art Basel where it really makes a bid for sort of museum integrity. It does. I mean, I I, I think you know large pieces by their very nature couldn't mostly only go in museums and I think the growth of private museums has been a huge driver behind Unlimited. Having said that it is curated by a museum curator um, and it is attempting to show works that are challenging not just in their size but you know sometimes their formats um as well you, know, you get quite a lot of video work um and there was a you know john rathman uh, virtual reality work so things that are in some ways challenging but definitely um ha- gives it much more of a museum feel there's there's a very interesting report from Basel by Anna Brady, our colleague at the Art Newspaper, where she talks to a lot of people um, in terms of the galleries, collectors and artists about unlimited status. And one of the things that's very interesting about that is she points out that there are um, curators who have seen things about, at Art Basel in Unlimited and those have and then have connected to artists as a result of having seen things at this art fair, which those of us who are particularly cynical about art fairs, perhaps, might just see them as being all about commerce. But actually, there's so much more that happens through art fairs these days. It's not just a trade fair, is it? Oh, it, it's not. No, I completely agree. I mean, one of the advantages of an art fair, curators and, and museum teams actually don't have massive budgets to go around the world and see every single exhibition at a gallery to, to, to see the new artists so how amazing you can go to one place um everyone you know is there but of course you're also seeing a lot of art some you might know and some you might not know at all and they're definitely places of discovery for for collectors but of course for curators i think it works both ways as well i mean if you if you look in unlimited there's a huge sam gilliam uh moment um from uh, david kadamsky gallery but he also has a show on at the same time in the Kunstmuseum, ditto theaster gates so you do also see the market reacting to museum shows but that it's definitely meshing much more now, Melanie, I have to ask you about your article, which you've written for the art newspaper, which I found really interesting, which is about the the current generation of people who are emerging into what traditionally might have been the sort of starting point for being a collector. So millennials are entering into a world where the economic structures are perhaps different to what they have been before. And therefore, it's not certain that they're going to enter into collecting in the way that maybe the previous generation did. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, of course. I think uh, we've just got a situation at the moment where you have an art market which is very, very reliant on a cult of wanting to own and to possess. 
and for younger people now that that's not cool it's just not cool to own it's all about sharing and it's all about experiencing which i think is really one of the biggest threats to the art market as we know it i think a lot of people are addressing it and are aware of it. I mean, Mark Spiegler, the director of Art Basel, says it's something you know he talks about with with the artist Doug Aitken all the time. Um, and I think, in a way, art fairs and the success of art fairs and the popularity and sections like Unlimited is partly because of that, because they are an experience as well. So this is one way of appealing to to younger people. I and mean, we need a new generation to want to buy art. Um, but it's also just how can you make pieces in some way relevant and you're you're getting uh, you're getting collectors buying in different ways sometimes they're not buying they're investing in production which is fantastic because they're thinking about it in a slightly different way but I do I do think there's a challenge ahead in terms of here is a rectangular object to go on your wall Um, I think that sort of market might be threatened but at the same time what we've been saying earlier and we're talking about Joe Mitchell and we're talking about um, Carol Beauvais, but, but also let's, uh, let's take the example of Kerry James Marshall, an artist who again has had a long and immensely distinguished career and only now has become a real market darling. We're talking actually about very traditional art in the sense that they, that they may be evolving the language, but they are still fundamentally making painting and sculptures. And this is the thing, isn't it? So even though art is evolving in all sorts of new, new ways, it's evolving in the direction of the event culture that we live in still the work that's selling for the most is paintings and sculptures yes i suppose that's that's a very good point and i noticed actually at lister which is for for younger more emerging another fair for younger more emerging artists there was an awful lot of painting this year um i guess it's that it's maybe it's the picture postcard thing isn't it people do want something to take home with them and the art market is is relatively small so you don't need that many people to, to to keep buying i just wonder if maybe uh art that has some sort of experiential element to it looks looks like it's got a better traje- trajectory than maybe a painting well we shall see melanie thank you so much for joining us you're very very welcome ben Art Basel continues until Sunday. The art newspaper team is in Basel and producing daily newspapers at the fair, so do pick them up if you're there, or you can read them at theartnewspaper.com, where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter and to the monthly paper. But that's it for this week. You can tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at The Art Newspaper, or follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.